This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Incredible and hardworking team in my office that tried this case. Because the scale and the scope of Donald Trump's fraud is staggering. And so too is his ego and his belief that the rules do not apply to him. Today, we are holding Donald Trump accountable. We are holding him accountable for lying, cheating, and a lack of contrition, and for flouting the rules that all of us must play by. Because there cannot be different rules for different people in this country, and former presidents are no exception. This decision is a massive victory for every American who believes in that simple but fundamental pillar of our democracy, that the rule of law applies to all of us equally, fairly, and justly. Thank you. You have been listening live there to Letitia James, the attorney general in the state of New York after a major day, a major win for her, you could say, as Donald Trump and the Trump Organization has been ordered to pay some $354 million for business fraud. On top of that as well, $100 million and counting by the day for interest. So we just watched Letitia James. Can we show the live shot right now of Mar-a-Lago? Because at any moment, uh, or at some moment here, I don't think we have the feed just yet, but when we have it, we will. There we go. Um, Donald Trump will come before the cameras, we at least expect and will offer his rebuttal to what was just put out in public by the judge and what you just heard from Letitia James, the attorney general there in New York. That is where we begin this Friday afternoon here on The Hill. Thanks for being with us. I'm Blake Berman, joined today by, let's go around the table, Chris Steyerwalt, News Nation political editor, senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Amisha Cross is a Democratic strategist, uh, former campaign advisor for the Obama campaign. There we go. Nailed Matt it. Gorman worked for Tim Scott on his presidential campaign. Denise gets some with uh, a former aide in George W. Bush's administration. I thought I had that memorized. I was close. Okay. Very good. good. That yeah. was good. Solid. Um, go. Jesse Weber, come on in. Sean Spicer, are you out there as well? I want you to, both of you to join too and, and jump in when you can. Hi, Sean. Happy Friday. Uh, I want to start with Chris. What did we just see from Don? What, what did, from what we just saw, and we believe we're about to see Donald Trump, what does today mean for him? Well, look, for uh, most Democrats and most Republicans, it doesn't mean anything because they've already decided everything that they can possibly think about Donald Trump. They've thought they've been thinking about Donald Trump forever. Uh, and this will affirm uh, their viewpoint. Now, the question is, what about persuadable voters? What about yeah. those voters who are going to suffer from Trump fatigue? And here's where uh, Donald Trump has had an advantage over Joe Biden for a long time. 
which is we haven't had to hear from Donald Trump every day. We forgot about the Dracula's Castle doorway here, the thing that where we used to wait for Donald Trump to yep. come out and have mm-hmm. pronouncements because we didn't have to hear from him every day. But we have been having to hear from Joe Biden every day, which has driven down Joe Biden's favorability numbers. The more Trump is in the news, the worse it is for Trump. And this is another example of how Trump is in the news. I think I'd agree with that. Um, I would also say that, you know, Trump has a lot of cases. This one might have fallen into the recesses of, you know, the average voter's minds. But because he built his entire name and brand, so did his father own New York and New York real estate, this is a big deal. Because it posits him as not only a crook, but from Letitia James, uh, you know, pronouncements just a minute ago, she also talked about how the family design was this, how it was a family enterprise, how they literally worked together to essentially steal, lie, cheat, Go to all aims of the earth to so, ensure that he was able so the to basic, influence. The basic premise is that he, Donald Trump, overinflated his net worth. And then because of that and personal guarantees he said he was able to make, he was then able to get preferred loans at better rates and thus part of the fraud that was committed by Donald Trump uh, and the Trump organization. Jesse Weber, talk to me for a second here. 354 million bucks, again, as we await Donald Trump to speak live here, we believe, at any moment. 354 million bucks and $100 million in interest. When's he going to have to pay that? And does he pay it all by himself? Does it come some of it from the Trump organization? Like, how does this work? Oh, it's uh, complicated, but let me try to break it down. So (laughs) Donald Trump, along with the Trump organization and the revocable trust, they are what is called jointly and severally liable. Now, what that means is you can collect those judgments from any one of those parties. Typically, when multiple people are sued, one might pay up, and then they try to collect the money from their co-defendants. Here, it's all of Trump and his businesses. So it's going to be interesting how he structures where the payment's going to come from. How much can does he have hand on hand? How much is in the revocable trust? Now, you asked, when is he going to pay it up? Well, the first thing that he's going to do is appeal this within 30 days. And what he's going to try to do is stay this decision, pause this decision pending an appeal. That is not so easy because one of the things you have to show is the likelihood you would win an appeal. And in this decision from the judge, he dismantled a number right. of Donald Trump's legal arguments. So it may be Jesse, difficult gonna- for Trump to stop. Oh, there you go. I'm going to jump in because here's Donald Trump. A New York State judge just ruled, and he's crooked as you can get, and a lot of people expected something like this, but not for the amount. Uh, But this is a very dishonest man. This is a man that's been overturned already on this case four times. But a crooked New York State judge just ruled that I have to pay a fine of $355 million for having built a perfect company. Uh, Great cash, great buildings, great everything. It affects New York. It's mostly talking about New York, where we have a totally corrupt attorney general. She campaigned on the fact that I will get Trump, I will get Trump. Everybody's seen it. Letitia James, they've all seen it. Well, we'll be appealing, but more important than that, this is Russia, this is China, this is the same game. It all comes out of the DOJ, it all comes out of Biden. It's a witch hunt against his political opponent the likes of which our country has never seen before. You see it in third world countries, banana republics, but you don't see it here. So I just want to say this. You build a great company. There was no fraud. The banks all got their money, 100%. They love Trump. They testified that Trump is great, great customer, one of our best customers. They testified beautifully. And the judge knows that. He's just a corrupt person. 
And we knew that from the beginning. We knew it right from the beginning because he wouldn't give it to the commercial division. This judge thought Mar-a-Lago is worth $18 million and it's worth anywhere from 50 to 100 times that amount. So we realized that. He ruled against me before he even got the case. He ruled against me. He said I was guilty. He didn't know what I was guilty of before he even got the case. And Letitia James, that's another case altogether. She's a horribly corrupt attorney general, and it's all having to do with election interference. There were no victims because the banks made a lot of money. They made $100 million. And by the way, I paid approximately $300 million in taxes as the migrants come in and they take over New York. I paid over this period of years over $300 million in taxes and they want me out. Oh, let's see if we can get them out. These are radical left Democrats. They're lunatics. And it's election interfering. So I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, we'll appeal. We'll be successful, I think, because, frankly, if we're not successful, New York State is gone. People are moving out of New York State. And because of this, they're going to move out at a much faster rate. They used a statute. It's a consumer fraud statute that's never been used for a thing like this before. They used it on me because I'm running for president. I'm beating Biden by a lot. We're beating not only the Republicans, we're beating Biden by a lot. The poll came out today, we're up 20 points on Biden. If I weren't running, none of this stuff would have ever happened. None of these lawsuits would have ever happened. Nothing would, I would have had a nice life. But I enjoy this life for a different reason. We're gonna make America great again. These are corrupt people. These are people that shouldn't be allowed to do the things they do. And they're using this as weaponization against a political opponent who's up a lot in the polls and always will be because I'm competing with a man who can't put two sentences together, who doesn't know what he's doing. And we're heading into a third world war because of this guy. We have to win this election. They're doing everything possible to step in a way, but we're not going to stand for it. So thank you very much. We will get back to work. Uh, it's a ridiculous award. Listen, a fine of $355 million for doing a perfect job, for having paid back a loan with no defaults, with no problems. The banks were totally, t you know, at the trial, they testified. We had an expert witness from the Stern School at NYU that made a statement. He, and I was very honored by his statement. He's one of the most respected people anywhere in the country for doing this kind of thing, expert wisdom. He said, this is one of the greatest financial statements I have ever witnessed before. And he talked about even the detail. So my numbers actually were extremely conservative. They saw this. So what the judge did is he brought down certain values like Mar-a-Lago, made it ridiculous. But the expert, after having all of this, testified one of the best financial statements he's ever seen. And I was honored by that. But I also knew we have a corrupt judge. He's not a respected man. And again, I said before, he's been overturned on this case by the appellate division four times already. It's a record. Nobody's ever been overturned on one case four times. And I think very importantly, and I think ultimately the most important, we've employed tens of thousands of people in New York, and we pay taxes like few other people have ever paid in New York. And they don't care about that. They, it's, a, it's a state that's going bust. It's a state that's going bust because everybody's leaving. And it's all headed up by Biden, who's destroying our country. So this is Russia. This is China. This is what you've been reading about all your lives. And it's happening right here in our country. Thank you very much. We will stop it. We will make America great again. 
You have my word. Thank you very much. And there you go, Donald Trump, a response to Letitia James, and with it all at once, essentially as well, a campaign speech for the front runner on the Republican side. Sean Spicer, former press secretary for that man right there, come on in. I wonder what you make of what you just heard from, from Donald Trump there at Mar-a-Lago. Well, I think overall this, this ruling today was the definition of what happens if insanity and outrage had a baby. This is nuts. The idea that you're, su- you're finding someone $350 million for something that no one actually suffered from. The banks didn't complain. The insurance companies, everything that Tish James laid out was a complete and utter lie. The children apparently weren't involved in this. This was a vendetta, a campaign promise that she had made on the campaign trail to go after Donald Trump if she got elected. But with everything that's happening in New York City, are you telling me that an event that passed the statute of limitations was the number one priority of this, to go after something that nobody was harmed from? that the banks didn't complain about, that the insurance companies didn't complain about. This is the continuation of a weaponized judicial system. We're seeing it over and over again. And all they are doing, we talked about the political nature of this, they are playing into Donald Trump's hands. He will withstand this. He will appeal it. But you're pushing more and more voters. The left has gone out and done this. They have no one to blame for themselves. But what about the middle? But what about the middle? Because the primaries... Yeah, but I, the primary I just think, for look, all intents here's and my purposes point. Is, is done. Right. So what about the general it, and, and, and independence and those it in is, the middle? But I, right, but I think what happens is when you go over the top, if the fine was $10 million, I don't think anybody would think twice about it. But $350 million for something that doesn't rise to that, even close to that level. You look at the nature of other civil fines for accidents, for uh, train derailments. For They don't even come close to this. You're telling me that someone who overvalued a property, if this is the standard we're going to hold themselves to, President Trump just brought it up, they valued Mar-a-Lago at $18 million. I'll take that day, that, that valuation every day and Sunday, cut, get the financing together, probably from the panel <clears throat> itself, and go down there and buy that. That's a joke. If someone's going to be guilty of valuating property incorrectly, then they're equally as guilty. How does this play out? I mean, to me, it feels like the punitive nature, what Sean is speaking to, of the fines, which seem based in no sense of reality. I mean, we still can't figure out where those numbers came from. Added to this being the first in kind in the sense of how this law was applied to President Trump, Combined with the notion that I think Americans on both sides of the aisle, including President Biden in his statements this week against the DOJ, that have added to both sides' attack on, or at least assessment, that our justice system is fundamentally unfair, is going to ultimately hurt Americans' belief in a justice system that works for everybody. And when you go back and look at Letitia James's statements, what she campaigned on, the more we focus on that, the clearer it becomes that this was completely politically motivated. But she said things like, I look forward to going into the office every day, suing him and going home. You know, how do you explain that as the top law enforcement officer of the state? Well, here the judge said... um the defendants are incapable of admitting the error of, of their ways. Instead, they adopt a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil posture that the evidence belies. I mean, it, the, the judge is saying here these aren't, you know, the, these are, this isn't the standard bearer of truth, essentially, the Trump family. Look, taking a step back here, right, Trump's had a good couple weeks winning some head-to-head uh, polls with Biden, wrapping up the South Carolina primary, seems like, in a little bit, and certainly 
Joe Biden hasn't helped himself. But now we're getting to another part of this year where most of his time will either be on the campaign trail or in and around a courtroom. And how he weathers that and how he can leverage moments like that to get a message across. You, you saw him try to kind of jam the migrant crisis in there yeah, as a talk. All of a point. sudden, we were talking about we, we went from a, an accountant to the migrant crisis. Exactly. Which I think but is- like, so he has to leverage these moments when people are paying attention in and around a courtroom to try and get a message out. That's who will determine who is going to win this. You know, and, and to that point, I wonder with with the Alvin Bragg thing yesterday and Donald Trump saying, I'm going to be at court. Jesse Weber, hang around, because I still have more for you, by the way, Jesse, <laughs> and Sean. But, but I wonder with um, him saying, I'm going to be at court by day and I'm going to be on the campaign trail by night, if all of this is just giving him a bigger megaphone. Well, so here's the thing. Uh, and my first question about this is, I have long believed that there is a a correlation between the length of Donald Trump's neckties and how he's feeling that day. And I don't think he was feeling good today because the necktie was all all the way down. He tied it all the way low. Um, Look, uh, Donald Trump doesn't need a platform. He is uh, he is on the cusp of being the Republican nominee. He is one of the most famous human beings in the world. Any time that he wants attention, he can have attention. It's not hard for him to get. That's why when when folks say this, these were a good few days for Trump or whatever. Yeah, he he's going to lose a lot of money, and he could be up for you know a, a, a sentence or sentences. And 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 I wonder whether so, the good days actually good days. The likelihood of Donald Trump ever paying a nickel of this seems low to me Very somehow low. that he will he will weasel out of the they're, they'll bankrupt whatever I mean this is obviously not a person who is averse to corporate bankruptcy uh, this is he has a he has a robust record on corporate bankruptcies my thing is for a long time Republicans have gotten out of this by talking as Denise alluded to the two-tiered system of justice and da 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 that works great in a primary that's great in a primary you can suck up to Republican voters in a general election having making persuadable voters say I'm going to buy in on the argument that Donald Trump is a freedom fighter in order to do this is a tough, that's a tough sell. That's a hard poll. But I do think, though, we're hearing it from both sides of the aisle right now. We're hearing it from both the Biden White House, where they're saying that it's a politicized report calling oh, yeah. him elderly. So that's undermining, at least on the left. They're seeing it, too. So it's not just a Republican. It has been primarily a Republican. This, this, this is the same because one is looking towards criminality. We have a guy who has 90-plus felony charges. There were no charges for Joe Biden. So the, the, the problem that a lot of Democrats had was you have someone who is not a neurologist who is commenting, basically giving a health diagnosis in a report that wasn't even necessary. That is a very fundamentally different argument than someone who decided to basically overvalue property, which any of us, if we did it to the extent that he did it, would be sitting in jail right now. No, we wouldn't be because it wouldn't be applied to us. It's never been applied like that before this law has never been applied to anyone else but President Trump. So no, President it's Trump never happened. This no, but that's a different they, argument. There is a, a, a totally pattern, different argument. There's no pattern of, of the law well being used his, this way. As well as, the, as well as others within the Trump organization. Can you point to someone else who's been treated this way times. with the law? Can you point to someone else? Possibly not, but I can point to several of so them. Hold, hold on one second. Jesse Weber, th- there was the question that Chris brought up of, will Donald Trump ever pay a penny? I want to ask you about that on the other side of the break, if you don't mind. Sean, can you hang around for like five more minutes? For you, Blake, absolutely. I like that. I like that Blake's leading up with the suspense. I love it. I I know. know. We got a a lot to get to, but we also have to get to a break real quick. Uh, More from the panel. Those questions to Sean and Jesse on the other side of the break. Stay with us. You bet. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This, you build a great company, there was no fraud, the banks all got their money, 100%. They love Trump. They testified that Trump is great, great customer, one of our best customers. They testified beautifully. And the judge knows that. He's just a corrupt person. That, of course, Donald Trump moments ago from Mar-a-Lago after the ruling that he and his companies will have to pay some $354 million and $100 million in interest that goes up by the day. Jesse Weber, Sean Spicer, come on back in. Jesse, there, and I'll start with you. There was the question of, will Donald Trump ever make a payment on this? And you would say what? I'd say it's complicated. Here's how it might work. So first, okay. he would have to put up a bond, let's say 10% of the amount that's due, while he appeals this. Appeals, if successful, and he's able to pause this decision, could take quite a few years. If he's ultimately successful, no, he wouldn't have to pay. But it might be kind of a middle ground approach. You would have to say that the judge was completely wrong. The separate question is, perhaps the judge's decision was too excessive uh, under the law. And then it would become a question of how much would he have to pay up. You mentioned, would Donald Trump pay? Would he ever have to pay a judgment out of pocket with his own cash? Would he end up selling the properties, which I think is really interesting, how much he could value those properties and sell them for based on what the judge said the values of the property were? And then there's the separate question of, you know, he's raising all this money through campaign contributions. Could he use any of that money to pay a judgment? It's complicated because you would say it maybe is for personal use, but I don't think we're at that point yet where he has to open up the piggy bank and pay out. There's still a lot more that has to be done. Sean, are you worried on that money front that the RNC, which is well documented, uh, has money issues right now or at least needs to catch up to the Democrats on the money front? Are you worried at all, especially with with Laura Trump going in there potentially as the the co-chair of the RNC that, you know, maybe that that money train keeps coming in that direction? Well, look, I, I was there in 2011. We entered the 2012 cycle, $26 million in debt. We were able to get out. We were fine. Uh, I think we could have done better. There's no question about it. The one thing is, once Trump becomes the the, the presumptive nominee, not necessarily the nominee, and we did that in May of, of, of 2016 after the Indiana primary, that low-dollar funding picks up. Remember, Trump has told the, the federal committees, the NRSC, the NRCC, and the RNC, that they were prohibited from using his name in fundraising, which was a huge boon, especially to low-dollar fundraising. Now that he will be ostensibly picking his own chairman and becoming the presumptive nominee very shortly, that kicks back in. I think the RNC will do just fine. They will raise the money necessary. They will fund what's called the Presidential Trust, which is about $27 million. They will have the money to need that. The one thing that's really interesting that that happened uh, in the 2016 cycle, there used to be a cap on hard dollars that could that could be raised by the RNC from any individual. That cap went away, but then we added two additional buckets, a a bucket where you could raise the similar amount in hard dollars for legal fees and one for what we call a building fund, which has been used to to house campaign headquarters all around the country. So the RNC is going to actually bring in a lot more money once he becomes the presumptive nominee. Can I just zoom out for a second and something that just occurred to me? Because we talk all the time about how grueling presidential campaigns are. If you're Donald Trump right now, you just got this 350-something million dollar judgment against you today. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you learned yesterday that you will go on trial in New York on March 25th. That is five weeks, mm-hmm. somewhere there. 
you've got to run a presidential campaign. What is the what is the toll that that all of this is going to take as we go week by week? Well, as we talked about before, to a certain degree, the uh, the legal liabilities of Trump are the campaign. Uh, this is where he can, uh, one of the advantages of being one of the most famous people in the world, news comes to you, you walk out there on your front steps and you say things and you get coverage. I don't think we'll see Donald Trump run like he did in 2016 with all of the rallies and all of the stuff. Um, we would also remember that he's going up against Joe Biden, who is going to be even less active on the campaign trail than Trump is. Uh, but I will say this. For both Trump, uh, my friends were talking before about Trump and Biden and their various legal imbroglios and, and this stuff. The, what was damning about the Her report was that Her said something people can see, that Joe Biden is a well-meaning uh, elderly gentleman and that he couldn't remember stuff. So you can't refute something that people can see. Trump has the same problem with this case. People believe that Donald Trump is a shady businessman, and a court found that Donald Trump was a shady businessman. It's just there, and people see it. So, Jesse, to, to that point, and we've heard some, some of the you know, Republicans here talk about how this is just a, just a bad case and a bad decision. Do you view it that way? Was this overreach from purely your legal perspective? That's two questions. So number one, I would say, okay. I think you could raise the political <laughs> argument. In ter- I don't, I've been saying you could raise the political argument about whether or not this case should have even been brought and questionable comments made by Letitia James. Put that to the side. The legal question here is, is there something? And I went through the 92-page ruling. I, I've been following this case. A lot of these political arguments that there was no victim doesn't work under the law. You don't need to say that somebody was harmed under this specific statute. And so that's not something that Donald Trump is going to be able to use in a successful appeal. And I think what we have to be careful about, and when we read this, is that, uh, you know, one of the things the judge said is a number of ways that Donald Trump testified that he was ignoring the questions, he wasn't going into that main point, he was contradicting himself, that uh, while these work for a political advantage, in terms of a legal argument, it's not going to go to his advantage. And there is a case here. You, you, the argument is the harm to the marketplace. It might not have hurt the insurance companies. It might not have hurt the banks. But if it, it was a detrimental, effect to, to, a detrimental effect to the marketplace, that's what we're talking about. And that's what I'm going to be curious to see how an appellate court ultimately rules. Jesse, I had a question. Um, how, do you, how do you assess the, I guess, assessment of the fines? Yep. Like, how did that number come about? And is that going to be at play? I mean, put aside, you know, what they ultimately decide yep. about his, whether he's guilty or not. But, but help us understand that, because it's really hard for me to get my head around. So if you look at it, the judge calculated what was the disgorgement of profits, right? What should have Donald Trump been assessed in terms of penalties? And over time, what did he ultimately pay? And there was a calculation done. I think that is where Donald Trump's most successful argument will be, that mm-hmm. this fine is too excessive. I think you make a good point that this specific statute that Letitia James used has never been used in quite this way before. Now, an appellate court could say, you know, I'm looking at the calculations, but remember, I just want to highlight one point. The judge said in his ruling today, you know, they talk about difference of appraisals. Yeah, there's a difference of opinion, but we're all working from the same science. They're not working from the same science here. That was his argument. Hey, hey Spicer, I got to run, but speaking of numbers real quick, give me a number. Donald Trump wins next week in South Carolina by how many? Uh, He wins. I I think he, he starts in the 60s. I think his margin of victory is, is close to 30. 
Wow. Okay. We, we got to run. We got to leave it there. Sean, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on in. Jesse, you bet. thank you to you as well. Have a great weekend, guys. We'll catch you soon. Still much more ahead here on The Hill, including this, by the way. All that talk about Donald Trump. Did you see where the incumbent was today? After 54 weeks, President Biden making his way to East Palestine, Ohio. If you thought things got uncomfortable for Donald Trump today, what about these images here? The Hill with us on the other side of the break. So after a year of criticism and questions, President Biden finally visited East Palestine, Ohio earlier today. Of course, that is the site of the train derailment that released hazardous materials into the air and into the water, causing a health and environmental crisis in that small Ohio town. Now, the visit being met with some protests from locals, but the president says the administration is not leaving until the job is done. I want them to understand that uh, we're not going home no matter what to this job is done. And it's not done yet. There's a lot more to do. Let me be clear. While there are acts of God, this was an act of greed that was 100 percent preventable. Too little, too late, Amisha, or right move to go at this time? It's the right move to go. I would argue that it probably should have happened sooner. I will say that there are several members of the administration, most notably probably uh, Pete Buttigieg, who went down pretty much immediately within the first week, and that this administration has done a lot um, in terms of environmental awareness and funding towards ensuring that, you know, this is relieved. But quite frankly, for generations, this could be a, a huge health hazard for people. Mm -hmm. So I definitely think that there should be more attention paid to it and that um, people on the ground who live there are frustrated for good reason. Waiting for a Friday afternoon to finally do this, you know, in the afternoon. It, it says a lot to finally just having to check that box if you're the White House to trying to get it done. Still hasn't been to the border. It seems like here it, he hasn't. You won't leave, like, apparently. They're not leaving soon, but it took him a year to arrive. Mm -hmm. So it, it says quite a lot. But also, that video right there is not exactly confidence-inspiring no. if, if, you're, if you're the a Biden campaign. And it's, also, it's off balance. And also, the secretary showed up the day after Trump showed up, and that was three weeks after the this disaster struck. And so I feel like the Biden administration has been one step behind the whole way. And unfortunately, I think it comes down to politics. You've got a red state that went for Trump by 10, I think, eight percentage points in 2020. And so they don't see any political benefit to having the president show up and give a speech no. where he says, you Let also me have clear, a red policy that caused this in the first place. Because remember, without the privatization there, you would not have had you would have had more regulations, regulatory efforts that would have prevented this from happening. So I do think that there's something to be said about, hey, Let's watch what we actually are, you know, putting our fire behind, because when you have policies like that, privatization in many cases ends up with less regulatory power and it's a lot more frustrating on the back. So you bring up uh, freight train acts, you bring up freight trains, right, which was the, the source of all this derailments in 2022 was 65. This happened basically at the beginning of 2023. And even with this happening, train derailments still spiked, a 14% increase. All accidents, train accidents, up 12%. So there are clearly things on the policy front, Matt, that, that need to get done here. Absolutely. And let's not forget, too, there's a big Senate race in Ohio, too. So how this will color the Senate race and whether Biden shows up in campaigns for Sherrod Brown, who has managed as a Democrat to outrun a lot of Republicans uh, in, in a red state. Let's face it, he's elected in 06 during the Bush kind of Iraq war rebellion. Now he's a very tough race. He's probably the underdog no matter where he is. Does Biden come back and campaign for him? That kind of marks a lot of this as well. So there, there's been a lot of focus, mm. and rightfully so, on the president, mm -hmm. right? Why did it take a year to go? I was one of the folks in the, the briefing room asking early on, are you going to go? Are you going to go? They said yes. 
you know, and a bunch of us were, were asking. And so there are right questions to ask about why so long. But I would also note mm. the Republican congressman who represented that district mm-hmm. took yeah. off and left. Yeah, yeah. Got yeah. a high paying job and said, I'm out of here. Good luck. And so it brings the question with all the focus on President Biden, has Washington in general failed this town? Well, uh, it depends on what you think Washington can or cannot do Mm. for this town. I I grew up uh, not far from there. I grew up just south of there uh, in the northern panhandle of West Virginia. And to the political consequences, Pennsylvania is right there. Yep, it's like right Uh, on. And Pennsylvania is the most important state of every state. And there are many of the people who were affected live in in western Pennsylvania. And so that is of material interest, certainly the shared brown race. But I will caution Republicans this. J.D. Vance and and a lot of the people on sort of the nationalist populist wing in the Republican Party think that they're going to out Democrat the Democrats on this stuff. Joe Biden loves regulations on stuff. If, who who loves railroad regulations more than Joseph Robinette <laughs> Biden, Mr. Amtrak? Yeah, Amtrak? Who loves regulating chemical companies? Who loves regulating all of this stuff? This is a Democratic jam. Now, they they certainly failed here uh, in terms of the political response and, and all of these other things. But I would just caution Republicans. You're not going to out-regulate and you're not going to out um, uh, run down big business over Democrats. They, they, they know how to do it. Sherrod Brown definitely knows how to be against big business. Speaking of potentially cautioning Republicans, live look right now, Eagle Pass, Texas. It has become a prime location for migrants to enter the U.S., as you know. Do we have that image? There we go. Eagle Pass uh, today on a Friday afternoon. There's a, a new idea here in Washington from a, a bipartisan group in the House of what exactly should happen with immigration reform, or at least what to do along the southern border. We'll explain what they are up to, and you're talking immigration. Yeah, we'll do it. What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about what the people want and why they can't have it. We'll talk about immigration. Once again, we'll talk about why we can't have nice things. Why we can't have nice things in Washington. (laughs) That's right. With immigration. Steyerwald breaks it down (laughs) on the other side of the break when The Hill on News Nation returns. Stay with us. and Taiwan. The bill is a narrower version of the bill that passed the Senate earlier this week. It also calls for uh, limiting the number of migrants that could come across the southern border. The House Speaker, of course, Mike Johnson, has rebuffed the national security package. (music) Meantime, we have new numbers on how Americans feel, this camera, uh, about the growing number of migrants looking to enter the United States. And what do those numbers tell us? Well, I'll tell you this, and we know this to be true. This is a hobby horse, and I I talk to you about it all the time, but it's really true. I, I love the issue of immigration because it so clearly reveals how the bipartisan duopoly fails to deliver, excuse me, it fails to deliver what the people want. So let's look here uh, at, this is the Pew Research Center. This is, this is the primo stuff. This is the, this is the kind of public opinion research that you want to see. And here's your top line number. Is it a crisis? Is the, are the migrants seeking to enter the United States a crisis? 45% say yes. When you add in, by the way, the people who say it's a serious problem, it's in the 70s, but 45% call it a crisis. 22% of Democrats, that seems like a lot of Democrats to say that it's a crisis, given what partisanship does to people's brains. But 45% is a lot. Okay, now, why do they think it's a crisis? Here's why. Crime. Look and see. What's the problem? 
57%. Now, we care about it when it gets into a real majority, because that means that it's not just Republicans, who if you ask Republicans whether uh, they liked uh, crispy hash browns, Joe Biden's crispy hash browns, they would denounce hash browns in all of their works. So when you get to 57%, that means that you're crossing over and you're picking up some Democratic voters to talk about this issue. 57% is a lot of percents. Okay, so here, follow me down the ski slope. Uh, you're going to, uh, I'm going to get you there as you look at this next graph. How do, how do Americans feel about the government's handling of the issue of migrants at the border? Decline. It's been bad, right? Okay, so why has it been bad? Look at the next chart. Here it comes. You're going to love it. People are saying it's the best chart ever. <laughs> oh, here's a big reason why. Because Republicans who instantaneously, when the presidency changed hands in 2021, said, ah, it's the worst ever. So that's a partisan blah, blah, blah. Who cares? But now look at the next chart, which is a different kind of partisan blah, blah, blah. It's a little interesting. So that's the Democrat. Fittingly, the blue line is the Democratic line. So look at that. Democrats initially said things are getting a lot better at the border. Donald Trump, the mean man, put the children in the cages. The bad guy is gone. Things are better at the border. I feel better. But now look at the leakage. Look at the downward trajectory among Democrats about their confidence in handling the border. Now, this is the part that's really interesting. Last slide, I promise. Take a look at this. What do people want to do and what do people not want to do at the border? And I want to tell you, wisdom of crowds, I'm a skeptic frequently, but this is it should be encouraging to all of you that what Americans favor is a mix of approaches. 60% say increasing the number of judges and staff at the border to process people who are coming so they can do it more quickly. Makes sense. 56% say make more legal opportunities to immigrate. That We have to reform an immigration system so that people can come here legally. And then 52% say you have to increase deportation. That's a balanced mix of things to do that a majority supports. What are the p- things that people don't want to do? Increasing economic aid to Central America. Foreign aid is always unpopular. Americans hate foreign aid. Uh, 36% say resources to improve safe and sanitary conditions. This, sadly, is like uh, uh, with our corrections, the departments and states, people never want to support more money for people other than them. So that's maybe not surprising. 38%. This is one of the three lows, is making it harder for people to be qualified for temporary legal status. Your takeaway, the American people are pretty rational when it comes to what to do about immigration. They favor a mix of getting tougher and being more permissive, and they favor a cogent system that works. This is the problem. 70% of Americans basically agree about what to do about immigration. But because of the two-party duopoly and because of the insanity of our primary election system, they can't have what they want. So, harumph. Steyerwalt breaks it down. So, I, um, I just wrote down... Increased judges, more legal opportunities, and increased deportations. That was basically between 5 to 6 and 10 Americans. The chance that Congress puts something like that together is well, they zero. Did they zero. Did. The Senate bill. The, right. So the, the Senate bill did it. So now we get the baby Senate, the, the baby version of the bill. And is it possible that the Freedom Caucus, no, the Freedom Caucus, LOL, uh, that, the problem, <laughs> that the Problem Solvers Caucus yes. in the House can discharge. So 
we're, we're reaching a point where if you if you represent a moderate district, mm-hmm. and when we look at how Tom Swazi won in, I'm so glad you got that in, in Long Island, honest. right? So the message is clear to Democrats now, which is if you are in a swing district, if you're in a competitive district, you have to have an answer on the border. Now it can be an answer that includes both generous and harsh uh, approaches. It can it can include a mix. But you have to have an answer. And I think the incentive for moderate Democrats to push on this, along with moderate Republicans, uh, maybe there's a way. By the way, as we look at this live picture of Eagle Pass, Texas, I think you can see there some folks uh, trying to cross with with Border Patrol or at least agents on the other side. Um, Tom Suozzi, real quick around the table. Was that a warning call? He was the Democrat who just flipped George Santos' Mm -hmm. seat in New York. Denise, is that a wake-up call? for Republicans that, you know what, they might have botched this border bill thing. Yeah, I think whenever you come with complaints, but you don't have a solution, and then it looks like you're trying to exploit a you know, potential, prob- a potential problem to your own political satisfaction for some fringe element of your base, you're going to get a lot of pushback from the American people what? because you cannot be complaining about it every single day and then decide that you just want to leave it up to the president to fix. Wake-up call? Absolutely. Now okay. the math is only two votes for a um, majority. Wake-up call? I definitely think it matters. I wouldn't necessarily call it a wake-up okay. call. It depends on it's where you're It's one data point, it's right? It's one data point. Right. There are a lot of it's other like, things going on in that. If, if you took a college statistics class, they would say, what are you talking about, Berman? F, right? It's just one data point. But who knows if it's the start of a bigger trend. Um, on the other side of the break, Leland Vitter, host of On Balance, joins me. And uh, we'll be back here in a few minutes. The Hill on News Nation returns. Tonight, Dan's all-star panel tackles it all. The latest on the shocking Bahamas assault case. Plus, how Harvey Weinstein's conviction could be overturned and new developments in the Rachel Morin murder investigation. Tonight on Dan Abrams Live, starting at 9 Eastern. So Alexei Navalny was Russia's most prominent opposition leader, as you might know. The Kremlin today reported on his death. President Biden, along with many other world leaders across the world, are expressing outrage over his death and are directly blaming Vladimir Putin. Here was President Biden earlier today. Make no mistake. Make no mistake. Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. What has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. No one should be fooled. The Commander-in-Chief earlier today, joining us now, host of On Balance, Leland Vitter. Hello. Hello. Well, we should report that Vladimir Putin promises an investigation. Okay, there you go. It's a little bit like O.J. looking for the real killer, right? exactly. Look, this is a real problem for Joe Biden because by example after example after example, foreign policy that was supposed to be his jam. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be the guy who had been on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee who was going to restore normal and bring America back no in more the chaos. world. Right? Uh, you're going to have, you have Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You have Ukraine. You have the war in Israel. You now have Alexei Navalny dead. And there is going to be a lot of discussion among, among voters of this feeling of unease. How does he reassure America that that these issues, these crises, don't spiral. And, and remember, going forward, there was the, the president had said back in 2021 that there would be devastating consequences right. if Navalny died. Navalny's dead. Navalny's dead. And the president was asked about today, well, what are the consequences going to be? And he basically talked about sanctions that have been imposed on Russia, and but, but didn't give an answer, Leland, about what comes next. This is the problem. When you're the president of the United States and you say something, like devastating consequences, right. or like this man has to go, right. That's or not, their days are numbered, it has to happen.